If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can look through the windows into the base of the ossuary and you can see the piles of bones that were collected from the, the battlefield. And when it was dedicated, the French president said, you know, here is the cemetery of France. And in many ways, it was. That was David Reynolds talking about the First World War Battle of Verdun. Um, that's very important to me, to try and find some you know, new faces. Let's not just talk about Leonardo, Michelangelo and Raphael, although of course we need to talk about them too. Let's talk about all these other people that got, that got pushed aside. And that was Valdemar Januszczak discussing the Renaissance. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of February 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A hundred years ago this month, the German army launched a massive assault on French positions at Verdun in northeast France. This was the beginning of a titanic clash between the two countries' forces that would continue for most of 1916 
and leave hundreds of thousands of casualties on both sides. For France, the blood sacrifice at Verdun would become the defining moment of the First World War. Historian David Reynolds is presenting a new series on the battle, and I spoke to him down the line from Cambridge a couple of weeks ago to find out more. What was the state of the First World War prior to the beginning of the battle? Well, the war opens in uh, August 1914. Uh, It's a rapid war of movement, but ultimately indecisive. The Germans don't get to Paris, uh, and by the end of the year, uh, we settle down on the Western Front to the trenches. 1915, it's the British and French who try to open up the war again, open up the deadlock, but without success. Big losses in the battles in Champagne uh, and uh, up in the uh, in, in the British sector during 1915. So both sides, in a sense, are looking for a way of uh, breaking open the Western Front, which is deadlocked in a way that isn't the case on the Eastern Front, where the battles ebb and flow. And so what, what was the German thinking prior to this battle? What, what were they hoping to achieve at Verdun? Well, it remains a matter of controversy. Uh, the uh, German commander, the chief of staff, uh, Falkenhayn, is, uh, claimed that what he did was to send the Kaiser a memorandum at Christmas 1915, uh, arguing for uh, a policy of... Uh, bleeding the French, Verbluten in in German, at a key strategic point that they would have to fight for. It's not clear that that memo was ever sent. It's certainly not been found in the German archives, and some historians believe this story was a fabrication by Falkenheim after the war to cover up the fact that uh, he hadn't really quite known what the strategy should be and claiming that it was a sort of strategy of attrition of this sort. What we do know is that he intended the attack to be a massive artillery barrage. The Germans bring up something like 1,200 artillery pieces of all sizes. And it seems to be, if you like, in our terminology, a kind of shock and awe offensive, not necessarily intended to capture Verdun, but uh, knowing that Verdun is a city that has a special place in French history, believing the Germans would want to fight for it and hoping that the French could be forced to bring in many reinforcements and that the Germans would gradually blow them uh, apart. Maybe Falkenheim hopes that then this will open up the front, it will force action elsewhere, maybe the British and French somewhere else will start trying to open up the front further uh, north. He's looking in a rather unclear way for a strategy but without a very clear sense of what will happen once you mount a particular offensive. But the main thing about Verdun is it's intended to be a massive artillery slugging match uh, in an area, artillery, where the Germans are at this stage much stronger. And so that, Vegas is, I suppose, was the plan. To what extent did their ambitions actually come off when they started attacking? Well, there is a massive artillery barrage when it finally opens on the 21st of February. Um, It doesn't have the literally immediate effect of of breaking French will, but within two or three days, the Germans are through the first line of defences. They're up against weaker defences and weaker French troops, and they start to make progress. And in particular, the striking event is the capture of Fort Douaumont, which is one of the series of uh, forts that are intended to protect the city of Verdun 
from enemy attack, uh, and, and Douaumont falls within two or three days of the uh, opening of the offensive. And it's another of these sort of strange stories from the First World War. It, it's it's uh, The fort, in fact, was hardly garrisoned. It was mostly old men, um, uh, probably 60 or 70 of them, uh, under an elderly officer. The Germans took it by surprise, um, surprise for them and surprise for the French. It fell with virtually uh, a, without a shot being fired. But this sent shockwaves through France and uh, uh, waves of exultation through Germany. Um, Headlines about Duomont is gefallen, Duomont's fallen. There's panic in Verdun itself. There's a feeling that the Germans are about to enter the city. Uh, There's a flood of refugees going south. And there is a real feeling that France is on the line at this point, at the end of February, late February. And that's where uh, General Pétain is moved in, head of the Second Army, and Pétain's sent in to steady the front, steady the nerves, and this is what he does over the next couple of months. Pétain, of course, is then later on famous for his role in Vichy France. Um, he, he ends up being known as the Lion of Verdun. What would you see as his real achievement in the battle? Well, he's, he is a defensively-minded commander, unlike most of the French uh, generals. He doesn't automatically believe in offensives. He is he's conscious of the of the blood cost of, of those offensives. He reorganizes the defenses of the whole area. He brings in new junior commanders. He and his staff ensure a proper line of communication from Verdun back to the nearest railhead, which is at uh, the town of Bar le Duc. That means creating a special road Uh, military road for all the traffic that's needed to supply a modern battle, all the logistics or the food, the supplies, and above all, the ammunition. This becomes known in French memory as the Voie Sacrée, the Voie Sacrée, the Sacred Way. And then Pétain also concentrates France's artillery, which had previously been used in a very dissipated fashion, um, little penny packets of of guns all around the front. He organises that into a coherent artillery system which can reply to the Germans so that when there is a German offensive at a particular point, all the French guns will target on that. So what you've got, and this is, I think, Pétain's great achievement, is that the French nerve is steadied. They organise for a big battle and they set it up as now an artillery duel between the two sides. And one writer said it's almost as if Uh, If you think of a kind of Wagnerian story, it's the gods hammering away at the earth uh, with these massive guns. And the tiny little soldiers, the pygmies, are there in the middle on a a, a very small area. I mean, it would be like, say, from, I don't know, Chelsea up to Heathrow, across to Heathrow or something like that in terms of the spread of London. Not very big, but that is just being blown apart by the artillery barrage and these men are in the middle of it, and that's the inferno, that's the horror of Verdun. It's such a concentrated battle with so much firepower. And what does this impact does this have on the actual people fighting in the battle? I mean, it must put tremendous strain on the soldiers going through this inferno. Yeah, it's it's, it's really terrorising. This is artillery that has, of a sort that hasn't been seen before that far in, thus far in the war. Pétain, who is a, a general who is who tries to understand his men and support his men, decides that there has to be a very rapid process of rotation through the front. 
maybe seven or eight days for a unit uh, before it is retired back into the lines or for, uh, rear lines. It might come again later, but um, short periods of time to try and save soldier morale and um, keep the coherence of the, of the French defences. The result of this is that it's estimated that maybe 75% of the French army on the Western Front in 1916 passed through Verdun at some point or another. So it's an experience that most of the French soldiers, the poilus as they're known, have gone through. And that's part of why this battle etches itself so deeply into French memory, because the soldiers and, by extension, their families have all heard about Verdun and the horror of Verdun. Here in Britain, we're, we're very familiar with the Battle of the Somme and the nature of the fighting in that battle. How similar was the, the fighting at Verdun to the Somme? The Somme is a, is a somewhat broader area. It is, of course, it begins as a British and French offensive. We often forget that the French are involved in this against the Germans. This one begins as a German one. And it is, as I say, more of a concentrated artillery duel. The two battles, in a larger sense, are closely connected. It was always intended that the British would lead an Anglo-French offensive on the Somme during 1916. But the date of that is brought forward under pressure from the French commander, General Joffre. Haig agrees to bring it forward, the starting date, maybe six weeks to the 1st of July, to relieve the pressure on Verdun. And once that battle starts and once it gets going in earnest, certainly within the first week or so, the Germans then recognise that they are going to have to make major reinforcements of the Somme, which is further northwest up the front, to the detriment of Verdun. So there is a sense in which the Germans then pull back onto the defensive at Verdun. The bigger, bigger t attacks, the big attempts to get to the city itself stop. In one way, you could say, well, you know, why didn't they then give up on the whole thing? Why was it worth fighting to, to hold onto four miles of land that you'd advanced or something like that, three or four miles of, of ground that you'd gained? But I think that by then, Verdun had become a prestige issue for both sides. It's kind of like Stalingrad in the Second World War. This was a battle that neither side could be seen in a headline way to have lost. And so it is, of course, also the only battle, the major battle in the war, where the French are fighting the Germans alone. Otherwise, they're with allies in some way or another. The Marne in 1914 is with the British, the Somme's, and later in the war, 1918, it's with the Americans as well. So this is a especially French battle fought on French soil to defend French soil. It's not an offensive battle by the French. They're not like Napoleon hundreds and thousands of miles away from home. So... The combination of these things, the, the number of soldiers involved, number of French soldiers involved, the special nature of it as a Franco-German battle and the, um, the defensive nature of it all are part of why this battle is so, has become so important for the French and in French memory. And obviously, at this point, things are going on in various other fronts of the First World War too. Does the Battle of Verdun in any way impact on those? Well, obviously, it impacts on the on the Western Front. It also affects what uh, can be done by the Germans on the Eastern Front, because if you put Verdun and the Somme together in terms of German casualties, probably about a million men are lost. Uh, and that, revisionist historians would emphasise, plays a big part in the wearing down of the German army. So it does have a, a significance in the larger story of the war as a whole. Of course... 
even though the German army is worn down in 1916, suffers very serious losses and particularly losses of junior officers who are key for organising, you know, battle at the tactical level. Nevertheless, the German army uh, hangs on for another two years to the end of 1918. And so where Verdun and the Somme fit into this larger history of the war is a matter of, of intense debate still amongst military historians. You mentioned earlier how the, the Somme maybe takes over in prominence in, in the sort of summer of 1916, but the Battle of Verdun goes on almost till the end of the year. Why does it eventually come to an end? Well, uh, the French are determined to get back the ground they've lost, and in particular the symbolic fort of Douaumont, which they'd lost in those first few days, that needs to be recaptured. And that doesn't happen until 24th, 25th of October. So that, in a larger sense, is when the battle could be said to have been won symbolically. Douaumont lost, now regained. On the other hand, it's not until Christmas that the French actually get back to the starting line they were at in February. And on the on the um, uh, eastern side of the Meuse River and on the western side of the Meuse River, they don't regain the ground until uh, the the summer of 1917. In fact, if you want to be absolutely precise, the French don't recover all the territory that they'd lost in 1916 around Verdun until the very end of the war, and that last bits of territory are, are taken back by American soldiers, not French ones. So it's a matter of debate you know, when it ends. But in practical terms, you could say it's generally thought of as a 10-month battle from February to Christmas 1916. So one, one of the longest battles of the First World War. By the end of it, who would be said to have come out, which of the sides came out the better out of the battle? Well, uh, better is a, is a problematic word. Between the, the, uh, the French and the Germans lose 700,000 men, roughly, we don't really know. That's killed, wounded and missing. Pretty evenly distributed between the two of them. So the, the losses are, are even on both sides. Symbolically, the French have resisted the German offensive and recovered the ground lost. So it is a French victory, and that's how it's thought of. Similarly, it's thought of in Germany as a German defeat, not much discussed in the 20s, except that the heroism of individual soldiers is noted and um, extolled. Uh, the people, the, the individual German soldiers who captured Douaumont in February, for example, are, are regarded as heroes. So yes, it's a French victory in the sense that, you know, the headline, but of course it's a Pyrrhic victory in terms of the huge losses that have been sustained. I guess making a comparison with the Somme, people, a lot of historians talk about this idea of a learning curve and that Britain improved its military tactics after the Somme. Did a similar thing happen for France and Germany after Verdun? Certainly for the French, the recapture of Font Duermont is in part attributed to a much more successful creeping barrage by the artillery. In other words, a more closely, more precisely calibrated advance of the artillery fire under which soldiers' infantry could follow up very closely. And that, of course, has to be very exactly timed in, in terms of the observers watching and the, the sophistication of the, of the control mechanisms on, on the artillery. So in that sense, yes, there is a learning curve compared to the early months of the battle where a lot of French soldiers and a lot of German soldiers would have been killed by friendly fire. You know, they'd, they'd overrun their own artillery and blown to pieces. And, of course, so much of the, the dead of Verdun were literally blown to pieces. There's no clear bodies. There's just piles of bones which have got to be cleared from the battlefield at the end of the war. 
So yes, in a certain sense, you could say that they have learned, and it's all part of a contributing to a more sophisticated war machine by 1918, but it's at a huge cost. For the BBC Radio 4 series that's going to be broadcast soon, you've actually been to visit the battlefields of Verdun. What kind of experience is it to walk around these battlefields a century on? Well, what has happened over the last century is that an area which had been almost denuded of vegetation, forest, buildings, has gradually grown in. Trees have grown in naturally, trees have been planted in large numbers, so it's been reforested. And there's a certain sense that that forest provides a sort of cloak over the horrors of the war. But you can see very easily going into areas around Duermont at the centre of the battle, ground that is still undulating, cratered from the uh, artillery fire. There are nine villages in this area that have never been rebuilt. They're known as destroyed villages, villages détruits. And what you can do now is to visit them. What the, the French have done, French authorities have done, is to give you, if you like, the ground plan of the streets, the houses, with little markers saying this was a, a butcher's shop, this was the post office, this was the church. But there's nothing there apart from those eloquent little markers, mute but eloquent markers. So that's a very powerful place to go. At the centre, the ossuary at Duermont, the ossuary of the bones, the places where the bones have been collected, is quite a grotesque and chilling sort of sight because you can look through the windows into the base of the ossuary and you can see the piles of bones that were collected from the, the battlefield jumbled together officially, just French bones, but of course, how could they know? It's French and Germans. And when it was dedicated, the French president said, you know, here is the cemetery of France. And in many ways, it was. It, it was seen as the battle in the First World War that was central to France's survival, France's achievement, France's victory. And that's why it had such a sacred place in French memory and why it still does today. You alluded to this earlier, but when you were over there and you speak to French people, how do they think of the, the Battle of Verdun now? Well, of, of course, there are many French people and many views of, uh, about it. For a lot of local people, it's clear that they, they still have a sense of a family connection. Grandparents, great-grandparents who had fought there, there is a sense of it as a special place. It's on home soil in a way that is not true for any of the First World War battles for us in Britain. So, you know, you have to imagine, well, what would it be like if there was a major battlefield in Leicestershire or something like this? It would have a particularly close place in local memory in a way that even the Somme or Ypres or whatever it is doesn't have for us. But there's also now, there has been increasingly a sense that this is, in recent years, a site of reconciliation and not just of national memory. And in 1984, for example, President Mitterrand of France and Chancellor Kohl of Germany met together on the battlefield at the Ossuary at Duermont as a mark of reconciliation and as a, a sudden, almost um, impromptu gesture. They held hands in the pouring rain, looking at the Ossuary and the memorials. And it's a very powerful symbol of the way that France and Germany have come together over the ruins, over the ashes, over the horrors of two world wars in a different kind of relationship as part of the European community, the European Union. So that this is a place where the memory for the French is still powerful and painful, but it's also now a site of reconciliation as well. That was Professor David Reynolds. His BBC Radio 4 series, 
Verdam the Sacred Wound, began yesterday, the 17th of February, and you can listen to the first episode on BBC Radio iPlayer. The second episode will air on Wednesday the 24th of February at 11am. David has also written a piece on Verdun for our February issue, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Henry IV, Benjamin Franklin, King Arthur, Dad's Army and a whole lot more. You can get hold of our February edition in all good newsagents and our many digital formats. And David Reynolds is also one of the speakers at our First World War in 1916 day, which takes place at Bristol's M-Shed Museum on Sunday the 28th of February. For more information and tickets for this and our Roman Britain event on Saturday the 27th of February, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Now it's time for the latest... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This History News with our digital editor, Emma Mason. The Polish government has claimed that Second World War codebreaker Alan Turing could not have cracked the Enigma code without the help of Polish mathematicians. Launching a touring exhibition entitled Enigma, Decipher Victory, the government hopes to remind the world of Poland's crucial contribution. Early Enigma codes were broken by the Poles, who then passed on the knowledge to Britain shortly before the outbreak of the war, and they even taught Turing how to build electromechanical devices that simulated the workings of the Enigma machine, the Telegraph reports. A spokesperson for the Polish embassy in Washington said... The story of Enigma was very important to us, and the breaking of Enigma code was one of the most important contributions of Poland to the Allies' victory during the Second World War. It is our moral obligation to right this wrong and put this picture in a more complete way. In other news, William Shakespeare's rude jokes are lost on modern audiences because his puns no longer work in 21st century English pronunciation, a linguistic scholar has claimed. Professor David Crystal says the wordplay of Shakespeare's poetry is often missed today because accents have changed so much in the 400 years since he wrote them. For example, the line in Shakespeare's 1599 play As You Like It, and so from hour to hour we ripe and ripe, would have had a sexual double meaning to Elizabethan theatregoers, who would have pronounced hour the same as whore 
and ripe like rape. Crystal, who has spent the past 12 years researching the original pronunciation of Shakespeare's works, hopes to bring the bard's overlooked puns and rude jokes to light with a new guide to Elizabethan pronunciation. The Oxford Dictionary of Original Shakespearean Pronunciation is to be published next month, The Times reports. Our second interview this week is with Valdemar Januszczak, an art critic and broadcaster. He's the presenter of a new series on BBC4 entitled The Renaissance Unchained, which challenges conventional views of this pivotal period. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Valdemar a little while back, and he began by asking him what inspired the series. Well, it's a new look at the Renaissance. Uh, um, as an art history student, and ever since, I've had I've been sort of fed this idea of what the Renaissance was. Um, but uh, in my time as an art critic, having gone round the world several times looking at an awful lot of art, um, I've just found myself questioning those earlier definitions that I received. So really, it's a kind of another take on the Renaissance, uh, and obviously one that I think is 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 different uh, fr- from the received takes, but also one that's important. Um, so uh, it's. A kind of new agenda for the renaissance Mm. so what do you think our main misconceptions about the renaissance are in that case well there are several things that i go into in the show it's four films so each one's different but i mean the 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 big idea is that the italians stole the renaissance you know and i say that because the first art history book the one that really everything goes back to was written by a chap called Giorgio Vasari in Florence in the 1550s. Um, and it's because it was the first art history book, it's the one that everybody sort of believed in most. And it, it, it really did set the agenda for the next 500 years. And in this book, um, as a, a jingoistic Florentine um, and, and a jingoistic Italian in a bigger sense, uh, Vasari really does... Uh, prioritize and favor the Italian contribution, and he understands things in a very specific Italian way. Um, And in the process of doing that, several things I think go wrong, or several misleading ideas are presented. I mean, for example, this really big idea we have of the Renaissance as as a a rebirth of of, of classical knowledge and uh, a return to the classical ways of making art. That's what the whole idea of rebirth, Renaissance, means. And that's a a word that was invented by Vasari uh, in Italian, the Rinascita, rebirth, specifically to describe this situation that he saw going on around him, where art had basically been dead for a thousand years, the, the dark ages had happened, it had all disappeared, all this knowledge and civilization that we had, and then suddenly the Italians come along and rediscover it, and, and there's a kind of triumph of the Renaissance in the art of Michelangelo, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael. Well, that misrepresents the situation in several ways. I mean, I'm not saying that that, that some of that didn't go on. Of course, there was a a rediscovery of Greek examples, and and they were in some places influential. But having been around Italy lots of times in my art historical career, um, I found far more exceptions to the rule than the rules. Um, And there's an awful lot of Italian art that just doesn't fit that bill that was made at the time, and that has since been either forgotten or, or, or ignored or, or downgraded uh, as a result. Um, and another storyline that, that needs adjusting is is this storyline that the Italians were these great heroes of the Renaissance. Now, of course, great, great things were done in Italy at the time. But if we focus too much on Italy and if we listen too clearly to Vasari, we miss out on some crucial things that were happening in the lands of the, the barbarians, as he calls them. In other words, the Germans or the Flemings. Um, I mean, principally, in my 
my first film, I, I deal with, for example, um, the, the pioneering use of oil paints. Now, oil paints were, they weren't invented in, in, in Flanders, but they were certainly developed and, and came into this kind of great fruition in the art of Jan van Eyck in the early 1400s. Um, and I would argue that the, influ- the, the, the discovery, the un- unleashing of oil paints had a far more important and profound influence on the history of art than, for example, fresco, which is what Michelangelo preferred to paint with, or tempera, which was the style of choice in 15th century Italy. And without oil paints, we, we would have no Manet, no Impressionists, no Expressionism. The entire history of art would be so different. There'd be no Rembrandt, no Rubens. So oil paints, which initially were, were, were sort of disregarded by Vasari, who's very, very um, uh, snobbish about the contribution of the North and, and the Flemings. I mean, he ignores most of them completely. Um, all paints were profoundly important. They changed art in ways that were not usually credited with. Um, another thing is optics. I mean, glasses were, again, not invented in Flanders at the time but, or in the Netherlands, but they were developed um, to this extremely kind of high level, and lenses became important. And just on a basic level, it, you know, artists' artists' working lives were, were expanded by fifty percent. You know, if you could still see through you know, even past the age of forty because you could wear glasses, you know, that gave you a much longer career, and that was again something that was pioneered in the in northern Europe. Emotion in art. If you look at these wonderful paintings by, for example, Frangelico or Piero della Francesca, great masters of the Italian early Renaissance, whose work I adore. But you can't really call it emotional in the way that it would point forward to to the Baroque, to to Caravaggio or Bernini or Rubens or Rembrandt, these artists who really knew how to bring tears to your eyes. But if you look at the art of Roger van der Weyden, who was, again, a great Flemish master of the early 1400s, his art is so emotional. It, It goes for your heart, not your brain or your sense of elegance. And that is something that art, again, it did right up to the age of Romanticism, it did. So, you know, we're talking about various things that happened outside Italy, which ended up, I think, having far more influence than this sometimes uh, important but often irrelevant search for classical examples that was going on in Italy at the time. So it's about shifting our focus slightly. Are there any individuals or techniques that you think are underdeserved uh, who don't get the look in they should? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in my second, in the second film in the series, I mean, obviously the f- first film is all about these northern Renaissance giants who are, who are largely written out of Vasari. But the second film is about Italian art, because just as as, as the ignoring of, of the North was, was wrong, so um, I think the, the presentation of Italian art as, as this hunt for classical models was wrong. Um, and so I try and understand Italian art in a different way and, and, and deal with a couple of people who are usually ignored. I mean, perhaps most notably in my, in my second film, this chap called Pietro Torrigiano, who um, has, he, has, he played a role in, in, in England as well because he came over and was invited by Henry VII to to produce his portrait, and he produced, indeed, some uh, wonderful grave grave monuments in Westminster Abbey. But this Torrigiano was basically hounded out of Italy because he had an argument with Michelangelo, who was a fellow pupil of his, um, and he broke Michelangelo's nose. That's almost what he's best known for, for punching Michelangelo in the nose and leaving Michelangelo with that incredibly well-known, disfigured boxer's nose that he has. Um, So this was Torrigiano, who, who was then sort of sent off scuttling around Europe where he produced amazing art 
art that's never talked about, but which is actually fascinating. And th- there's a marvelous example um, in Seville, in the Museo de Bellas Artes in Seville, which is this St. Jerome by Torrigiano, which is just so realistic because it wasn't carved out of marble. So you've got to get away from this idea that making great Renaissance art means getting a big block of white marble and somehow releasing this inner figure and, and all that sort of stuff, which all get, dates back to Vasari and his mythologizing of Michelangelo. But with Torrigiano, you get art that's made with terracotta. So it's not carved, um, it's molded, it's assembled in a different way. And that gave you access to this very elusive Renaissance quality of realism. And when you look at Torrigiano St. Jerome in Seville, frankly, it's breathtaking. You can see all the veins on his hand, you can see every wrinkle in his body, you can see these hitting himself in the chest with his rock. And the realism is astonishing. And it's not realism for realism's sake, just because just you could do it. It's realism as this new weapon in art, this, this weapon of conviction, this, this almost magical way of seeing that, that played such a big role and that had such a big impact on the audience because it, it indeed looked miraculous. It was so real, you could mistake it for real life. Um, and you can't say that of Michelangelo's David and you can't say that of a lot of what he did. Um, and in the same way, in Italy, I mean, I went to see in Bologna, in the Cathedral of Bologna, there is this compianto, which is a, essentially a kind of um, a scene of, 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 of Jesus Christ's death. Around him are, are gathered the saints who are there. So there's the Virgin Mary, the apostles, Mary Magdalene. Um, and this compianto, which was much admired by Michelangelo, incidentally, um, but which, which was made long before he was born, um, is an astonishing piece of sculpture. I mean, you go there and you think, how, how is it I've never heard of this? And this was made in the 1460s, and it could have been made in 1620. It's almost Baroque in its, in its movement. All these, there's a wind blowing through Mary Magdalene's veil, rustling it, and the, the intensity of the face, the intensity of their anguish, their expression. I mean, this is the Baroque age 200 years early, but you don't hear about it. Why? Because it didn't fit the Vasari model. So, if, you know, I spend as much time as I can in this film trying to find things that we don't hear about much, but we ought to hear more about. And at the same time, just trying to shift our understanding of Italian art onto more religious lines. Because I think this is the other issue with with under, with, with taking too readily or accepting too readily this, this classical myth that's been promoted by Vasari. It secularizes art. Um, so many stupid explanations of what's going on on the Sistine ceiling, for example, where people people are talking about, you know, he's trying to replicate Roman river gods and, he, and, and he's sort of sculpting mini Hercules up there and all that. You know, this is the Pope's private chapel at the centre of the Catholic Church at a time when the fierceness of the Pope Julius II and the fierceness of the religious arguments was unchallenged in, in, in Italy and in Europe. You're not going to have classical models all over over the Sistine scene, you need to understand this thing as a Catholic work of art with a powerful Catholic religious message. And then you see another side of Michelangelo. You see Michelangelo, the tub-thumping um, Christian doom merchant, because essentially the Sistine Chapel is the end of the world. You know, we, we, That's what he's painted up there. And when you walk in there, you are walking into the end of the world. And you're doing it because you and your ancestors have sinned against God. We've done all these terrible things ever since Adam and Eve committed the first sin. We followed them down that road. So this is a mighty and powerful Christian message. And although it has 
possibly in some corners of the actual painting. You could make arguments for little bits of influence of classical statuary or whatever. I mean, in a way, that really is missing the point. That's that, that's like that's like taking the exceptions and forgetting the rules. You know, this is not okay. This is not about that. This is about this big. Catholic message being presented in the middle of the Vatican in the Pope's private chapel. And again, you know, if you read Vasari, that just that just doesn't come across because he's so busy trying to present the Renaissance as this other thing, this kind of enlightened moment. And of course, much later after Vasari, you know, when, when, when art history became a, a university subject, it was basically invented by Protestant Germans at the end of the 18th century. You know, they liked to present it too as this, this thing that was beyond religion almost. And there's almost a kind of embarrassment about the religious content of Renaissance art. So it was avoided. Um, and I don't want to do that. You know, if, if you if you avoid religion and powerful religious impulses in, in Italian art of the 15th and 16th century, frankly, you're misreading it. You know, you're not looking at it properly. So that's another thing I go into in this kind of little collection of arguments that I've got about how we're misreading the Renaissance. You also in the series, I think, visit Venice. What's your take on that in this context? Well, Venice was the fountain of so much. Um, um, in Vasari, um, uh, again, sorry to keep going back to him, but this is really where it all started. You know, this is where the problems began. In Vasari, Venice is sort of downgraded. I mean, he looks at Venetian art and he dismisses it because he says it's all about colour and about sensuality, and it's not about design and proper stuff that he believes in. This this big argument, disegno versus colore. Um, he likes Titian, but he doesn't like him enough compared with, with Michelangelo. Well, Actually, Venetian art turned out to be far more influential than Michelangelo. If you look at the art of Titian, if you look at Tintoretto, you can see forward to all kinds of things. You cannot imagine Impressionism without the influence, without the impact of Titian. This free painting style, this sensuous painting style um, that, uh, that emerged in Venice had an enormous influence on the future, enormous impact on the future. And uh, it, it was partly because of Venice's unique situation. Um, now, one of the, the most important things about Venice was that it was this great trading center that linked the East and the West, because Venice basically was the doorway to, to the East in Europe, and it was a great trading center. Um, you know, they had, for example, a marvelous influx of new pigments. Um, bright new colors came in that hadn't been seen in art before. So there was like cinnabar came in in vast quantities from China uh, and lapis lazuli, of course, from, from Afghanistan. And, and these pigments were sort of readily available to the artists and they began to use them in these wonderful free new ways. And of course, they were the Venetians were the first of the Italians to take up oil paints, um, basically because oil paints could dry in Venice, whereas fresco could and fresco would fall off the walls. It was so damp. So they took up oil paints, and that you know, that had an enormous impact. You know, if you if you paint on oil paints on canvas, that means you can paint in the studio. You can have models in. You can pose them. You can change the lighting. You can paint your picture, then roll it up and take it to the church and install it. That gave you an enormous freedom. Now, fresco, you've got to sit there underneath the roof for months on end, painting it while it's there. You can't bring models in to stand in front of you. You can't control the lighting. It's a different aesthetic, isn't it? And that aesthetic that the Venetians pioneered is the one that basically came to dominate art. I mean, we, at the oil on canvas, um, the, the work in the studio was all traceable back to these great inventions of the Venetians. And of course, this new sensuality of Venetian art, the nudes that they started to paint, uh, all these things were 
were new in, in Western art. Um, and, and although Vasari looked down on them, history has proved him wrong because they went on to be mightily impressive. I mean, you know, you cannot, you can't help but draw a, a line of descent from, from, from sort of Picasso and the Demoiselle d'Avignon back to, to, to Titian and, and, and his news, you know, that's the, that, that's the line of descent there is. So again, that was hugely important. And it's the location, this wonderful, in, in, amazing sort of fragile sense of Venice being suspended almost between the the sky and the sea um, and then this this sort of sense in which the island was vulnerable that gave it that kind of slight fragility that you get in Venetian art this great sensuality the love of women it had the most prostitutes of anywhere in Italy all those things fed into the art and gave it this other quality which went on to be tremendously influential mm. what was the thing that surprised you most in the course of making this program well I think it's the good art that I encountered that you don't hear about you know that's what absolutely amazed me most that if you if you follow the usual storyline of the renaissance you just don't see so many good things i mean uh, granted that someone like roger van der weyden is 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 known in art and appreciated in art and he's hardly an unknown figure but you ask most people in the street, what do you think of Roger van der Weyden? They probably won't know who you mean, certainly compared with Leonardo da Vinci or with Michelangelo. And yet when you look at his work, I mean, I, I don't think there is a greater painting in the entire 15th century than van der Weyden's Descent from the Cross. You know, it's a, it's a picture that, that, that grabs you by the heart, slaps you about the face and fills you with such powerful feelings. It's a it's an absolute masterpiece. It, it, you know, we, we should be talking about it as readily as we talk about the Mona Lisa. It's it's just this marvellous picture that that tended to to be to be ignored more than it should have been because of this kind of given storyline of art that again with 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 Niccolo dell'arca and the compianto in 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 bologna you know this great sculptural tradition of italian terracotta made marvelous things early early in the 15th century you don't hear about it um i mean I wasn't able to get everything into the series because because it could have been a twenty five part series. So so some of the things that that we couldn't get in, you know, they're going to be little bonus films um, uh, that'll be available on the BBC website. There's there's one, for example, about Propezia de Rosso, de Rossi, sorry, who's a, an Italian female um, sculptor who, who I would very much like to shovel in, but I just couldn't find the space in the end. But you know, this woman was renowned in her times as 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 one of the great um, the great inventive sculptors of 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 the of renaissance europe and what she did was she sculpted on on peach stones or, or pear pear stones so these tiny bits of hardwood like that she would carve saints in them and faces and things and beautiful bits of jewelry that um that only really come to life under a, under a magnifying glass or a microscope and they're they're brilliant pieces of work um which it, you know, if we if we were if we were looking at the Renaissance in a different way as this as this period of great kind of steps forward in in all the arts in in the decorative arts in the painting in in in, in textile making in glass making all these other things that I try and touch on in this series you know the other people would emerge who, whom you'd see were giants in their field as well um, that's very important to me to try and find some you know new faces let's not just talk about Leonardo Michelangelo and Raphael although of course we need to talk about them too let's Let's talk about all these other people that got that got pushed aside once this big storyline of the renaissance that can be traced back to vasari once that storyline had taken command and, and begun to be seen as the only storyline mm. if you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask someone a question what would you ask them 
Oh dear me. Um, I think. Well, can I can I slightly flim flam on that? If if I had to meet if I had to meet anybody, of course I'd love to meet Michelangelo. Um, I mean, if, if if everything I've said leads you to think that I don't in some way rate him or appreciate his work, oh no, that's wrong. I, I I'm I'm intoxicated by Michelangelo. I just want to see him in the right way, not the wrong way. Um, and. I, I, you know, the Sistine ceiling is is it, isn't it? I mean, uh, as a feat of creativity, as as a thing for one man to have made, as a, as 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 a sort of display of suspend of 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 of, of, of imaginative development. I mean, all those things. It's a feat of of of, of invention. It, it's just unparalleled. I'd love to talk to him about that, and I'd love to know more about his relationship with Pope Julius II as well, because all that was very interesting and very fraught with dark storylines. I mean, that's the other thing about the Renaissance. You know, we, we think of it as enlightened, but oh my. Dear, there were there were some very spooky ideas going on around then about the end of the world, about the comings of new messiahs, about things that have been predicted in the Bible. And everybody from Leonardo da Vinci to, to Michelangelo, they were all essentially incredibly superstitious people. So that side of the, that dark, spooky side of the Renaissance, if you like, the, the Dan Brown side of the Renaissance, you know, that went on as well. And 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 we shouldn't, I mean, we shouldn't believe all of it. We should certainly not 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 believe any of it. Um, as this period drew to an end, what's your take on some of the things that happened then? You kind of talk about the confusion and the darkness of that period, I think. Yes. Well, my final programme is about, as it were, the end of the Renaissance, i.e. the 16th century. Um, I mean, it, one of the troubles with – one of the difficulties with the usual definition of the Renaissance is, is that it doesn't really – it doesn't sort of have a place for, for the stuff that happened at the end. I mean, you can sort of understand what people mean about Michelangelo and Leonardo Raphael. But where really do you place someone Archimboldo or, or later in the story El Greco? You know, date-wise, these are late Renaissance figures, style wise what the hell are they um, and but but it's only a problem if if you believe this other image of the renaissance that came before if if you see the renaissance not as this prescribed attitude to art this this reinvention of of the classical world if you see it as 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 a kind of continuation if you like of, of some of the bigger ideas of the medieval world um, and as a, as a sort of precursor of of some baroque ideas that came later then you don't really have a problem with it i mean there's this movement called mannerism which you know, when I was an art history student, you know, you, you should be taught quite happy. People would teach quite happily about what happened in the Renaissance, and then to get to mannerism, they wouldn't really know what to say about it because it, it, you know, if if the Renaissance was a candle, mannerism would be the moment when someone lights a flame in the middle of it and it starts to warp and droop and melt and lose its shape, and no one really knows what they're dealing with with mannerism. Um, so. In my film, I try and look at it in a more positive light. I mean, I, I don't see mannerism as as the decay of the Renaissance, as the Renaissance going wrong, and uh, I, I see it as a kind of triumph of the Renaissance. You know, I see it as 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 a sort of return, a more obvious return to this great personal expression that had happened elsewhere in the Renaissance and had happened earlier. Um, and the same with El Greco. Um, you know, El Greco is one of those artists that. I mean, he was ignored for 500 years for a start. I mean, it wasn't really till the beginning of the of the 20th century that El Greco became famous again. You know, he, he was completely lost almost from art history. Um, but when he was rediscovered, it, it, no one really knew what to do with him. I mean, here's this chap who's working away in Toledo um, at the end of the 16th century in this weird style that was descended from Byzantine icons, which he'd learned in Crete, but was then sort of enlivened by the influences of Venice and Rome, places he'd... he'd 
he'd studied and stayed in before he came to it to Spain. So he ends up in Spain. He does, you know, produces some of the most exciting art ever. I think. I mean, he's one of the most uh, thrilling of all the old masters. But it doesn't fit anybody's bill, and and no one knew where to put it until we get to the beginning of the 20th century when he's rediscovered by the generation of Picasso. And Picasso himself was one of the leading figures in the rediscovery of El Greco and. Through El Greco, Picasso discovered Cubism. I mean, Cubism is basically El Greco brought up to the 20th century. That's essentially what it was. And this massive influence on art that that, that, that El Greco had via Cubism, which then, of course, went on to influence all the other great isms um, of the 20th century. You know, that is the Renaissance's great gift to the future. But it's not Leonardo da Vinci's gift to the future. It's not Michelangelo's gift to the future. In other words, it's not your classic Renaissance as we've been led to understand it. It's these other things that were going on, these other wonderful, exciting things that were happening at the same time. And those are the things that I'm trying to pick out and enjoy in my series, The Renaissance Unchained. Mm, amazing. And finally, um, if you could, if this kind of series of programmes could change people's perceptions of the Renaissance in one major way, what would you like that to be? I'd like, I mean, you know, I'd like them to, um, okay, keep going to Italy. We all know, we all love Prosecco, we all love sun-ripe tomatoes, and we all know that art looks better when it's bathed in the warm glow of the Italian afternoon. But, but honestly, if you really want to see new and exciting things, I'm afraid you need to turn your back on the Prosecco for a bit. Go and have some beer and chips in Brussels, um, or go over to Nuremberg and have some Bratwurst and study Dura. You know, change your, 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 ch- change your compass a little bit and head north, because... The, the things that were being done north of the Alps at exactly this time are extraordinarily exciting. And, um, you know, I know that we're never going to get a TV program um, in which a famous art critic and a famous chef go around Brussels, Brussels sampling art and beer and, 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 and chips. But, but you know, let, let the real art lovers of this world let them go out there and see, you know, towns like Mechelen, towns like Ghent, towns like Antwerp, Brussels. They're full of marvellous art of exactly this period, an art which ultimately, I would say to you, ended up being more important. That was Valdemar Januszczak. Renaissance Unchained is currently showing on BBC4. The first episode aired on Monday and is now available on BBC iPlayer. The second episode, entitled Whips, Deaths and Madonnas, is due to be shown next Monday the 22nd of February at 9pm. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Third Crusade and some of the antiquities that have been destroyed during the recent conflicts in Iraq and Syria. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.